Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. Steve Osborne, comic from San Francisco, Fran Duffy, NFL analyst, Philadelphia. I have a survey for you both. Instead of pitting Team Black against Team Green, (laughs) instead we're going to pit the original series against the prequel series. Here is the first question of my survey. For We'll start with you, Fran. Who's most likely to give you a sexually transmitted disease, King Aegon or King Robert? Uh, um, I, I, just because of longevity, I got to say it's probably King Robert, right? Mm. He's been doing it longer. So I, I would say it's probably King Robert. Very, very good. <laughs> Steve, uh, King Aegon or King Robert? Yeah, I'm going to go with Robert, too, because somehow it feels like all of his STDs were pre-existing conditions, like that he was born with them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, all right, Steve, uh, you go first on this one. Who writes the worst birthday card to his daughter, Tywin or Otto? Uh, I think it's got to be Tywin, because I bet you he just kept on like writing a, a man's name instead. <laughs> <laughs> he just can never remember Cersei's name. Exactly. Uh, all right, Fran, who writes the worst birthday card to his daughter, Tywin or Otto? Yeah, it would it would probably be Tywin. Uh, it just uh, Otto at least would f- probably finish it with like you've never seen more like your mother than you do right now. You know, some kind of semblance <laughs> of nicety at that at the very end of it. So I think I'd probably his classic sign off. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm afraid both of you are wrong. The answer is Otto because. The birthday card probably reads, go hang out with that gross king. All right, <laughs> number three, uh, Fran, you go first. Who writes the worst Valentine's Day card, Laris Hightower or Ramsey Snow? Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The worst, I mean, it's got to be Ramsey. It's got it's to be Ramsey. He is just pure. I don't think there's any ounce of, like, affection mm. in the in that in that guy whatsoever. Uh, whereas Laris, I think there is, like, a, a some, like, twisted level of, like, adoration there. Um, somewhere, <laughs> I don't know. Like, it's so, somewhere under the surface. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I think with Ramsey, it's, yeah, mm-hmm. Rams, okay. it's Ramsey. Steve, worst Valentine's card writer uh laris or ramsey so i think i think it's probably ramsey even if the writing is nice the card is probably made of skin yeah and that's kind of a turn off what else is in the box yeah right yeah i think laris might have like a roses are red let's go to dinner but lose that shoe (laughs) (laughs) um Steve, you go first. 
who's the bigger bummer at the New Year's Eve Christmas party, Kristen Cole or the Hound? Bigger bummer at the party, Kristen Cole or the Hound? Wow, that's a really... Yeah, I think it's Kristen Cole. Um, I just think... I mean, I feel like the Hound, at least... At least when he's being a bummer, it's there's a certain I don't know like uh, like because you know it, it, I think of some of the parties I go to as an introvert. I'm looking for somebody who also doesn't want to be there, mm-hmm. you know. And I feel like like it, he's the kind of guy that's like, yeah, dude, this place sucks, right? And he'll tell you something really serious about like you know what really sucks <laughs> having your face burn. And like, all right, fine, like you're broke. <laughs> but like, but Kristen Cole just strikes me like I'm God. He's he's a little bit up his own up his own keister. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, Fran. Kristen Cole or the Hound, worse bummer at the New Year's Eve party. I feel like with uh, with the Hound, like at least he will partake in terms of uh, being able to sit in the corner and drink. And there might be some like Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump energy where he's sitting there just <laughs> sullenly as the confetti falls on his head. But sure. uh, yeah. I do. I think when you look at Christian Cole, like he's trying to ru- he's trying to end and ruin the party and probably kills mm. like two or three people uh, in the process of it. It's always uh, a so I will go Christian Cole. Yeah. yeah, very good. Okay. Um, Steve, who would be worse to share a hot tub with old Viserys or late stage grayscale Jorah? Oh, wow. Worse to share a hot tub with Viserys or Jorah? Look, I don't exactly know what water and bubbles do to grayscale. Um, I feel like if the, if, as long as it's like maybe one of those six person tubs, you know, I could, I could just kind of, he would almost just kind of fall in there like an anchor Mm. and I probably wouldn't have, I'd know where he was at. Whereas Viserys, I mean, this, I mean, this is just like, he's just like a loose leaf tea at this point. Loose leaf tea is the winner of the the podcast. Thank you, thank you, Steve. Fran, uh, who would you who would be worse to share a hot tub with, Viserys or Jorah? Well, I feel like if you leave Jorah in there long enough, like when he got uh, when he got grayscale, like didn't he? You know, you saw the the stone men like come up from under the water. There's probably mm. some fun tricks he could do in the hot tub. So I will go with uh, with Jorah probably being more fun, where I would just be completely skeeved out by uh, Viserys in there at that point. <laughs> you guys are underestimating how pussy Jorah was. <laughs> um, Prisoner, prisoners of the moment. You know. <laughs> All right, um, Fran, you go first on this one. Who's a worse companion on a long road trip, grown-up Helena or grown-up Bran? Oh. <laughs> I've actually, I have wondered if there will be some kind of connection there because there are definitely similarities between these two. Um, uh, I mean, I guess probably Bran because like he can not just only like tell you the future, but he could also like tell you some good stories from the past. And even though there's like it's mm. completely monotone, like oh, you're he, saying he's the better, he's the he's better, the better. yeah. So Who's I would say the worst? Probably, I would be... say Lena would probably be the worst. Yeah. Okay, so Helena... she would say things. And now you're just trying to yeah. guess what's going to happen next. Whereas Bran like has some you know ability okay. to go forward and back. All right, Steve, the worst companion on a long road trip: grown up Helena or grown up Bran. I, uh, I, t- I mean, everything that Fran says makes a ton of sense, but at the end of the day, I, I kind of need, I need just a little bit of eye contact. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so which, which one are we talking so about? So Bran, Bran's going to be worse. I mean, look, I'm on record saying he was the right king, but he's, it doesn't mean I want to go anywhere. With him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Final question for you first, Fran. Who would you rather see in a Ferris Bueller's Day Off reboot, Varys or 
Laris. <laughs> I mean, I think that with Laris, you know, with that foot, he probably put the pedal to the metal in that car and sent it through the glass window a little bit faster. Uh, I, I think that it's, pro- it's probably Laris. I'd probably want to see that. Although the movie might end a little faster. I think yeah, it might I was going to say, shorter movie in that yeah. case. All right, Steve, uh, would you rather see Laris Bueller's Day Off or Varys Bueller's Day Off? So, yes, I think that's important to, to say who's who, like what the roles are, right? Because, I mean, I think I think Laris and the Cameron role would be would be ideal. Oh, yeah. Um, and Varys, I don't, gosh, so Varys, you know what, give me, give me, a, give me Varys. I'm going to go with Varys Bueller's Day Off, um, just because I'm real curious to see what his song choice will be on the float. Not twist and shout? You don't think twist? I don't think he twists. And even if he does, I mean, I'm kind of curious to see how he pulls that off. Lara's just trying to get on the float might be an issue. <laughs> I don't know if we have that kind of time. Hello, fandom. The new season of Electric Boogaloo is right around the corner. No reading is required. Just come hang out with your favorite characters. Remember the Hound and Sansa together way back when? Remember when Arya meets Jack and Hagar for the first time? And of course, each of my guests, in addition to being a very smart person, is a huge fan of the books and the shows. So that's what Electric Bookaloo is all about. But I am well aware that a lot of you tune in specifically for House of the Dragon talk. So here's my promise. I promise that at least for the first 10 episodes, I will include a bit of House of the Dragon conversation. So if you have a question for me or Steve or Aaron or someone with a PhD in medievalism, you can send those to book at baldmove.com. So stick around for some hot D discussion, and then maybe stay a little longer to hear a surmise about Craster's religious devotion to the White Walkers. All right, sit back and enjoy a few clips from the upcoming season of Electric Bookaloo. Here is Oxford medievalist Catherine Ollie. Martin likes to make you wonder, is this supernatural or not? But if I'm going to read this in a Lovecraftian way, I would wonder if Patchface has some special knowledge of these hybrid fish creatures, human fish creatures that Martin wants to occupy the margins of his story. And I, Kate, I, I see you smiling. Yeah, that's kind of, I, I was, and, and this came up as we were talking about his attitudes to religion earlier as well. Um, I, I was thinking as I was reading it, and this was kind of another of my questions, is his patch faces kind of sojourn under the sea? Um, can we tie that to the, the religion of the drowned God? And you yeah, know, yeah. is there evidence? Because I think Martin's quite even-handed in his treatment of religions. There's power to be found in almost all of the, the religions in, in some way, shape and form. It's almost always limited as well. Right. Um, but is this kind of a, um, possible evidence, you know, that, that there is this power under the sea that is something the, the Ironborn's religion is, is tapping into? And is this another indication there of, yeah, things things under the sea because that's you know that's how he begins all of his all of his kind of mm-hmm. musings under the sea what he what he knows and and he has essentially been through the ritual of the drowned god he has been drowned and he has come back here is scottish historian ian mckinnis i'm thinking of like vaymond i'm thinking of damon i'm thinking of otto 
Eamon's, you know, th- there's a lot of second sons in this show. Mm. And I'm wondering if the problem for second sons is that they grow up not having a clear inheritance or they, they grow mm. up not having a, a clear path to power. If they want what, <laughs> what their older brother has, they have to figure out how to take it somehow. Yes. Um, and I think that they are historical characters you have someone like Edward III of England has a lot of sons and lives a long time uh, so so as he's nearing his his own end you know he has he has these various sons but his heir has predeceased them but but has has a, a male heir himself so you have Richard II comes to the throne as a as a youth uh, as a as a teenage boy uh, but he's surrounded by all these royal uncles some of whom are perfectly loyal and, and willing to to help him but but yeah. there's always they always act as that kind of alternative source of power and you know damon potentially fills that role um you know he he is the heir presumptive until viserys changes things and and and, and puts up rhaenyra instead um but it's it's you know him being in the background all the time is always a potential threat and the small council recognizes that Otto recognizes that uh, he knows exactly what what Damon might do that's what he spends the first couple of episodes trying yeah. to avoid yeah, yeah. Um, or you you get someone like um King John um who is the youngest brother of four uh, and so probably thinks that he's he's never going to succeed um but but by the the, the accidental nature of things by the time his elder brother Richard becomes king, John is the next in line. Um, and when Richard disappears off on crusade for a couple of years, it's, it's the perfect opportunity for, for John to try and make right. something of himself back in England, and he does. Um, so, so yeah, these I, I think those those younger sons are always quite interesting to watch in terms of how they develop. I, I think there are perfectly normal examples of ones who are perfectly loyal, absolutely do what their, their brothers or their or their nephews want them to do, and are the the paragons of of good behavior. But equally, there are a decent number of examples who aren't. And yeah, it's perhaps unsurprising, the latter category is more interesting. <laughs> now, I've been thinking a lot about knighthood lately, and I'm I want to try an idea on you. Okay. So recently, I was interviewing uh, someone who specializes in depictions of knights in medieval literature. Mm-hmm. And we were covering this movie, The Green Knight, on, mm. on my my other podcast. And I, f- I was thinking about, like, the dichotomy between the ideal knight as, de- as is depicted in literature and the realities of the politics of knighthood. Mm. So let me, let me throw this at you, right? So... There's this idea of chivalry which sort of makes the knight because of the code or whatever. But I think politically speaking, to have the office of a knight is a clear avenue for a second son. Because they're not going to inherit the house. They're not going to inherit the lion's share of the lands. You need some office of prestige for that second son. So maybe knighthood fills that need. What would you say to that? Um, I think if it's if it's if we're talking about royal sons though, or even noble sons, to be honest, I, I think I think all of them would expect to have knighthood. They they would expect to be knighted at some point. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like they, like they have they have an objective. They they're ex, they have a, an entitlement. You could say, mm. and but, because but I, they I, are given that entitlement, and I'm thinking of the ancient world. The ancient world, 
the second son is kind of out of luck. But in the medieval period, at least the second son can be called a knight, and that's that's prestigious enough, right? Uh, yeah, I suppose to a point. Although I suppose I, I think of knighthood as not being an end in itself. Um, that that I, I think once you are a knight, you then have to kind of live up to expectations. So okay. the, the, you you have to have the opportunity to to demonstrate your qualities, whether that's bravery, strength, whether it's intelligence, whether it's you know various other attributes sure. we would associate with with chivalry and with knighthood. So so there there still has to be an outlet for that, which is usually military. Um, but but I suppose in, right. in periods of in periods where there isn't war, then it has to be something else. Right. Okay. So let me ask you this: Are do we have examples like Viserys, who people would, uh, you know, associate as sort of, you know, you think of the king as sort of like the warrior in chief or something, but in reality, you know, you've got a lot of these lords who are knights in name only, that really never, you know, they they never go to war. You know, the, the, these guys. So I, I'm wondering if. We have examples of folks who live on the currency of the office, but never prove their worth in battle. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that, that medieval warfare is not as battle-heavy as the literature might have us believe. Um, it, it's rather like, you know, if you want to extend the Game of Thrones reference, it's like the, the romances that are always referred to, um, not living up to the reality of what the knights of Westeros actually are. Um, and and the same is true of the medieval world as well. That that knights may reminisce about their experience in battle, and and chivalric romances may wax lyrically about the experience of battle. But battles are actually relatively rare, huh, uh, and so really? okay. it, it, yeah, well, I mean, f- full scale engagements. Um, and so even your most chivalric of warriors for a long part of the medieval period haven't really fought in too many battles. Richard the Lionheart only fights in a couple of battles. William the Marshal, you know, the, the greatest knight of medieval Europe, only fights in two or three battles. He's he's far more active in sieges, in raids, mm, and mm. in tournaments. Um, and so, you know, the uh, something like the tournament field, especially for younger knights, uh, sorry, for younger sons, is absolutely an opportunity because that's the way to... To absolutely to demonstrate your skill, to to show your worth, to to demonstrate your bravery, but also to uh, gain access to a lord's retinue, uh, to effectively be hired mm. um, and and earn a living um, as part of that. If 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 your father isn't going to give it to you, or, or your brother isn't going right. to give it to you, uh, or if you're worried about about your chances of progression, that's an alternative way potentially to do it. That can give you effectively a full time job. Yeah, and we actually do see that in the show a bit. I mean, you you almost get the mm. sense that the knights in the show haven't been tested in battle. Yes. It has been a time of peace, and yeah. so how do you test your medal? You have to test it on in tournaments and whatnot, right? Yeah. And, the, and, and Renera kind of makes a point of this when she's trying to decide who to promote to the Kingsguard, and that's, that's sort of what Kristen Cole has that the other knights don't. Here is Professor of Gender Studies, Jan Doolittle-Wilson. Tyrion doesn't just have two levels, right? It's not just like mm-hmm. surface level looks and then deeper, a little bit of purity. Martin's characters, his best characters, are complicated and have layers like onions, right? Yes. 
Tyrion, of course, is going to look a certain way on the surface. And then below, there's going to be the courtesy. And then below is going to be, you know, there's just going to be 10 more layers down there. And he absolutely is going to murder his lover at one point in this story. Or Let's he'll not be forget he murders Shay. He's, yes. he's going to be driven by greed. You know, he's going to have opportunities to leave it all behind. He does not do it. But... He's going to look down at Penny when they're connected. You know, yes. he's going to you know, project his own self-loathing onto her. So it's not like Tyrion is, you know, the the monster with the heart of gold. He's got layers underneath his layers. And right. and and of course, this is the world that Martin. This is this is why this is one of the reasons we like characters like Jamie and like characters like Tyrion. Oh, Jamie's one of my favorites. Please let me do a Jamie chapter yeah. with you at some point. <laughs> we, yeah, I'm, sure, I'm sure we will get there eventually. It it's just a it's such a pleasure to see how deep these characters go. And it is one of the ways that Martin, as a gardener, as he describes his writing style, he's going to dig. He's going to keep digging in, in one little bit of the garden until he finds something interesting there. And those are the most, I, I think they're Martin's favorite characters, you know, the Tyrians and, and the characters with all of these layers. And mm -hmm. I think viewers and readers are certainly drawn to characters who are much more complex. It reminds me of reactions to Damon in House of the Dragon, right? Ah. Where I think we like him. He's awful. He's repulsive. And yet he has this weird code um, of loyalty. And he, he does the right thing at times, right? Um, but he's very complicated. And it's been really interesting to read some of the commentary, the audience reaction to Damon at this point, where um, kind of the defending of some of his actions that are actually pretty reprehensible. Mm -hmm. So I think that we like complex characters, but we still feel like we have to put them in these either or boxes, either you're a hero or you're a villain. And there aren't too many pure heroes or villains in Martin's tales. There you're, aren't. The people that you like do really horrible things. There aren't. However, I think that Damon is just... I don't think he's. I don't know. Is he if just I, pure villain in your mind. I'm not gonna. He's not gonna be redeemed. <laughs> no, he's he not a Jamie type. We're not gonna see him sort of. But arc do you toward find redemption. yourself liking him at times? Maybe? I can't take my eyes off him. I, yeah. He's he's the most fascinating personality on the screen. He really is. I mean, I I will watch him do horrible things all day long, but. I, I'm not. I'm under no delusions that this guy has a noble center. No, he I mean he is chaos. He's chaos uh, in the form of a human. You know, I play into this too, though. So that spoiler warning of uh, that last episode of House of the Dragon, where mm -hmm. he chokes Rhaenyra. Yeah, I remember thinking, oh, but Damon, you're doing something horrible. And then I realized that's who he is. Who he of is. course, he's choking this person. Yep. He's not a good person, but I wanted him to be. Um, so <laughs> I get that impulse of, yep. oh, please. Please be a Jamie. You know, please be somebody we can root for. And that's not that kind of story. <laughs> um, it's just, it's really not. <laughs> I'm enjoying it. I do wonder, like Martin does like anti-heroes, right? Mm -hmm. I, sometimes I wonder, is that what we're watching with Tyrion? Cause, An anti-hero. Because yeah. I do think like he, he does present as kind of a roguish uh 
protagonist. Uh, he he does he does present more of a, of a protagonist in the same yeah. way that the sh- that the books have taught me to root for Arya, um, encoding her in you know traditionally masculine ways, right? Yeah. The books have and the show have taught me to root for Tyrion, and I wonder if this is going to be something that ends up breaking my heart in the end. So I don't know. I think so much of it too is, you know, just again, those point of view chapters, they direct the reader where to sympathize and where to um, seeing the world from that point of view, you know, and I think Tyrion of any character has the most point of view chapters across, you know, the books that we've gotten so far. Um, So I think we're naturally kind of inclined aside from the fact he's just a fascinating character with all of these layers that you mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. We see so much of the world from his point of view, which is why I love with later books, we start to get more characters who were really just kind of, we only saw them from other people's perspectives. I love when they start bringing in Jamie, of course, when we start getting Cersei's point of view, Mm. you start to see so much more from those characters because it's from their thoughts and and we hear that inner monologue and, um, we start to see other characters from a different angle because we've only ever seen them from a certain point of view. So I think it was a really brilliant, you know, writing strategy on Martin's part and how he, sh- he shakes that up as we go through. You don't have yes. the same point of view, yes. you know, from all of the characters throughout the book. Some you do, you know, but but many of them are introduced in later books, even though they seem to be main characters yeah. you know, early on. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you on, Jan. And I was just doing a little search on... I'll find the next time Jamie shows up and I'll I'll shoot you an invite. It may yes, it might be I, a while, but I will take you up on that for sure. FX is adapting James Clavell's best-selling novel Shogun into a 10-part miniseries this spring. Set in the shogunate period of Japan at the turn of the 15th century, Shogun depicts the rise of a feudal lord to Shogun as seen through the eyes of a shipwrecked English sailor. It's loosely based on the real-life exploits of William Adams and Tokugawa Ieyasu. Shogun has already been successfully adapted back in 1980 with a widely acclaimed miniseries starring Richard Chamberlain, featuring intricate plots, political scheming, complex characters, and thrilling action. This time, husband and wife team Justin Marks and Rachel Kondo try to recapture the successes of the novel and early adaptations while increasing the levels of historical and cultural accuracy that are often perceived as flaws of this and similar works. Starring Hiroyuki Sanada from The Last Samurai, Mortal Kombat, and John Wick 4, with Cosmo Jarvis of Peaky Blinders, Raised by Wolves, etc., joining the truly massive cast required to bring this complex world to life. Join Aaron and I each week as we deep dive into each episode, uncovering the mysteries, the intrigue, and the glory of Shogun. Shogun premieres on FX Hulu Tuesday, February 27th at the two-part debut. Our podcast will release each Thursday thereafter. Get our Shogun coverage by searching for Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Rick, how you doing, buddy? You, you don't know what it's like out there. Hey, man, do you even know what it's like out there? No, not really. I've been mostly kind of flying around in helicopters, carving likenesses of Michonne into cell phones, that kind of thing. What is it like out there? Oh, well, I think it's time to find out, man. Last I saw your wife, Michonne, was out uh, following a giant wagon train? 
That, that sounds pretty weird, but it seems like a family-friendly outfit. I mean, she's got RJ and Judah with her, right? Um, actually, she kind of left them to be raised by Negan and Daryl. Well, crap. Hold on, let me get my boots. All right, while well, Rick is getting ready, Aaron and I are too. We're preparing to once again recommission the Watching Dead out of mothball status to find out what's going on with Rick and Michonne, the ones who live. The six-part miniseries premieres Sunday, February 25th on AMC, and we'll be ready with our full episodic coverage each Tuesday. And afterwards, who knows? Maybe we'll check out Dead City. Find our coverage for The Ones Who Live by searching for The Watching Dead or Bald Move Pulp wherever you listen to podcasts. You've been listening to quite a few Bald Move podcasts now, but you're not in the club? Whoo boy, you are missing out. Not only are all of our premium club podcast feeds completely ad-free, but we have lots of other great content exclusively for people in the club. There's a weekly lunch with Jim and Aaron where we chat with fans about anything and everything from TV and films, food, fun, life advice, and more. But there's also Off the Clock, our premium podcast where we talk about all the shows we don't have time for on our public feeds. Plus, you get access to our full spoiler-filled first-round movie reviews of our newly released films. Don't forget Instant Take and Talk Podcast, where we give our hot takes and discuss television shows with our fans live and immediately after the episode airs. With mega shows like House of the Dragon coming this summer, we're going to have lots to talk about. Not to mention access to our fun and friendly community of club members with exclusive Discord channels and a dedicated forum. It's one of the best places on the internet to hang out and chat about pop culture. Bottom line, you're helping two regular type guys in the Midwest make the content you like to listen to, which some would say is rewarding to itself. Help keep the lights on and the bits flowing at Bald Move. And get some awesome content for yourself. Head to support.baldmove.com to join the club today. try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at Bald Move. Just join the club. Well, some people aren't a joining type, or maybe they're already in the club but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage, or for a podcast that really spoke to them, or gave them that bit of support in a tough time. For these, and for whatever other reason you might have, our tip jar is always open. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. Once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love. Commission podcasts are an awesome feature here at Bald Move that allows you, the individual listener, to decide what we talk about for a single podcast. The community loves it because it often leads to fun fan favorite films and TV shows that we've overlooked getting the coverage they deserve. And we love it because we're constantly exposed to great stuff that's not even on our radar. The way it works is simple. You go to support.baldmove.com and you click on commissions. Then you pay the flat rate for the commission and tell us what two-ish hours of content you'd like us to make podcast on. Then we'll contact you for details, advanced feedback, and any dedications you'd like to make. Then we watch the thing, discuss the thing, turn it into a podcast, and pump it right into your ears. 
We get consistently great feedback on how much our commissioners love their podcast, and they make great gifts for the dedicated Bald Move fan in your life. And who knows, that dedicated fan could even be you. Treat yourself. Check out support.baldmove.com for more info. Here is Professor of English Literature, Stephanie Barbehammer. But the other uh, moment in this text that I think is so wonderful and that shows us, sure, continuity, but also considerable evolution in terms of the skill set of this person is the actual fight with Hot Pie. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Which is, again, as a writer... I so admire writers who can write action scenes. Action scenes are so hard to write because it's it's all action. It's physical. So how do you use words mm-hmm. to demonstrate and make us feel, make us share what's happening? And the description is just fantastic. Do you mind if I read uh, it? Yeah, go for it. Okay. Arya slid her practice sword from her belt. You can have this one, she told Hot Pie, not wanting to fight. That's just some stick. He rode near and tried to reach over for Needle's hilt. Arya made the stick whistle as she laid the wood across the donkey's hindquarters. The animal hawed and bucked, dumping Hot Pie on the ground. She vaulted off her own donkey and poked him in the gut as he tried to get up, and then sat back down with a grunt. She whacked him across the face and his nose and made his nose crack like a branch breaking. Blood, <laughs> blood. <laughs> I, I shouldn't be laughing. It's this is violent, right? <laughs> blood dribbled from his nostrils when Hot Pie began to wail. Arya whirled toward Lamy Greenhands, who was sitting on his donkey, open mouthed. "You want some sword too?" she yelled, but he didn't. What a! <laughs> It's great. And I just want to stop for a second because yeah. we both laughed. Yeah. Because there's something again, this is the genius of, of the author. There's something a little three stoogesy about it. it is a you know, bit. crack yeah. and the falling on the ground. And of course they're on donkeys, which is also funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're not on steeds. They're not on stallions. <laughs> they're on donkeys. So and when Hot Pie began to wail, he's this big guy who said, I killed somebody, I'm yeah. awful, I'm so bad. And he immediately starts to cry. Yep. Yep. So there's a there is a little bit of comedy there for sure. Yeah, and it's you know, the stakes are somewhat lower because we know this is a practice sword. Um yeah. so it's it's not like, you know, we saw a horrific interaction that Arya had at the end of the last book. Yes. She ends up killing someone. Um, yes. She's on the run. She's afraid for her life. And she ends up stabbing a boy in the stomach. And, and yeah, she it, kills him. She's a murderer. Yeah, it's it's an abs. And she's a little bit, you know, she's certainly feeling guilt about it. Yeah. She, doesn't she wanna, mentions it here in yeah, this Yeah, she doesn't want to tell Yorin that she's done this. But she kind of knows I have something in common with these men that, that Yorin dragged out from the black cells. Right. She keeps on looking at the guys and the, you know, the the three really scary guys. She keeps looking at them, perhaps recognizing a little bit of herself in them. Yeah, I think so. And she's not quite comfortable with that. This is kind of her, she's taken her first steps toward this death religion. Yes, true. Um, She's not, we don't, we don't have her reciting her list yet, but you kind of see the nope. seeds of that. She's she's named Joffrey as sort of the person that's most responsible for Ned's death. Yes. 
So, um, the list is forming. Yeah, the list. Yeah, the list is forming for sure. We have at least one name. All right, stick around on this feed. Next week, we will begin with chapter one of A Clash of Kings. It's Arya's first chapter on the road where she meets Hot Pie and the Bull, and although not named yet, Jack and Hagar. If you're interested in my full roundtable discussion on the prologue of Clash of Kings, that is available now at Double Dragon. And that is all for this week.